0: text that we pray God to speak to us from this morning is in 2 Thessalonians, and we're going to be reading chapter 1. The 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, we're, it's a slight departure from our, our series that we're in right now, which is uh, looking at the I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John, but uh, I trust that God will speak to us from his word in 2 Thessalonians today, and um, we're going to be reading that full first chapter. It sounds like a lot, but it's only 12 verses, and we're going to be looking at what Uh, God has to speak to us from his word. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we're starting in verse 1. God's word tells us, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And a great relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord So that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's ask God once again to speak to our hearts. Lord, we thank you that your word has been made known to us, Father, that you speak to our hearts. We pray that you would show us, Lord, that uh, we may have a faith that is unshakable because it is grounded in you, Lord. It is rooted in our dear Savior, Jesus Christ speak to us from your word now. It's his name we pray. Amen. Around 100 years ago, there was a man who made his living selling fear. He made his living selling fear. And uh, by this, I mean that he was an author in the genre of horror. He sold scary stories, right? And he wrote a lot about fearsome and terrifying things. But Almost always within his stories, there was something of getting at the root of what is the ultimate fear, the ultimate terror. And many times in these stories, there's a main character that encounters a realization that inspires fear so powerful that it shatters the soul. So what is this idea that can break the will and snap our minds that's so fearsome? Well, it's simple, it's this, in his stories, the most terrifying idea that a character could encounter was the realization that God is not good, that God does not care, and that God cannot be known. The most terrifying thing to consider. And I'm here this morning to tell you that this is not the God that we serve. This is not our God. Paul is writing to the church of the Thessalonians to tell them, to remind them of the blessed truth that we serve a God who is not nameless. He is not nameless and he is not aimless. He's not nameless because he sent his son, the God-man, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to seek out sinners to save. And we know that God is not aimless because he's not surprised. He doesn't act flippantly. In fact, we know that God is more than a God of purpose. God is actually a God of providence. And all of this means that if we are in Christ, if we are Christians, we can have belief that is unshakable. We can have belief that is unshakable. And it's unshakable not because you or I are up to the task. It's not because we're specially talented or specially equipped in and of ourselves that our faith, our belief can be unshakable. It's because our belief is grounded in the same belief that the people that Paul is writing had. And that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This has consequences for us. If we're believers, if we're in Christ, it means that we get unmatched purpose and calling as a person who has been made new in Jesus. And if you are not in Christ, if you are not a believer, it means facing consequences that cannot be avoided outside of trusting and following Jesus. These are the ideas we're going to be exploring this morning. And as we do, there are going to be three things that I want you to mark down. Three things that are going to help us understand not only what God is telling to the church here in Thessalonica, but what Paul's words have for us, uh, meaning for us, here in our church today, because they do And the first thing that we encounter in this passage is the unshakable nature of genuine belief. It's the unshakable nature of genuine belief. Does that idea of genuine belief seem hard to imagine? That is unbelief, I'm sorry, genuine belief that is unshakable seem hard to imagine? We're going to be exploring that idea, but before we can actually talk about unshakable belief, We need to be clear about what we're talking about when we say belief here. You see, we're not talking in this context about a mere sense of heartfelt conviction. Because you can feel, have a heartfelt conviction for any number of reasons, any number of times or places. Christian belief is more specific than that, right? Christian belief is, genuine Christian belief is more than simply having a feeling when the pastor is talking. Genuine Christian belief is more than walking an aisle or signing a card or being a member of a church, even if it's this one. You see, you can be the most sincere person in all of the world, and you can still have never experienced genuine Christian belief. Because the genuineness of Christian belief is tied to the person that it's trusting in. Genuine Christian belief looks to Jesus Christ. It looks to him as Savior And Lord. Savior meaning that you look to Him knowing that your sin condemns you before God and you must trust in Jesus Christ to save you from what you cannot possibly bear yourself, the penalty for your sin. And you must cling to Him as Lord. That means letting Him order your life. He is the one who directs your actions and your passions and your desires and what you do with your time that you've been given here on earth. He is Savior and Lord. This is what genuine belief means here in this passage. And the Thessalonians, their genuine belief is being put to the test. Um, Paul extends to them a greeting that uh, if you read throughout the New Testament, you're familiar with this. Uh, It's grace to you and peace. But there's something kind of that catches you off guard here if you're paying attention because Paul's greeting of grace and peace actually descends upon a church that is profoundly impacted by trust in in the grace and peace that can only come through the lord jesus christ his commendation of grace and peace actually descends upon a church that is characterized by grace and peace that can only come through the lord jesus christ this is not always the case in the churches that paul writes to a lot of times they're really really messed up and grace and peace are what they need so desperately but not so much what they look like right let's read in verse 2. It tells us, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. See, Paul has a joy here that is irrepressible. It's something that just has to come out. Thanksgiving that cannot be held back. And some would say, oh, he's saying this is kind of a begrudging thing. We know, like, we really want to, we know we ought to, but we, you know, we will, but we know we really don't want to. I think what Paul is saying here is it's less like an obligation. And it's more like when you hear a joke and you just can't help but burst out in laughter. There's a joy that has to come out, a joy that is rooted in the genuine belief of the church, And how do we know that this belief is genuine? Well, let's go back to that greeting. He greets them based on their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also important to notice that there's a progression in the life of the church here. There's a progression in the life of the church. Their their belief of of this church in Thessalonica impacts the way that they live. Uh, We're told here, described by Paul, that faith growing and love increasing leads to thanksgiving. Faith growing and love increasing leads to thanksgiving. You see, unshakable belief is not merely about being tough as nails. It's not really about being so tough that you can get through anything. It's about having roots that are so deep that they shape the way that you live and the nature of your belief. What the church looks like is shaped by how deep the roots go in faith in Jesus Christ so this leads us to ask the question this morning. Am I a cause for thanksgiving in the body of Christ that we call the church? Is this what I look like? Am I a cause for thanksgiving in the life of the church? Are we as a local body called North Park? known for our faith that is growing and our love that is increasing. And I ask this not because this is what I want for you. I don't ask this because this is what Pastor Josh wants for you. This is what God desires for his people. So when our faith is growing and our love is increasing, God is working. And that's something to be joyful for, isn't it? When our faith is growing and our love is increasing, God is working. We want God to be at work both in our lives and in our church. Another testament to the genuineness of the belief in this church is a surprising context for their flourishing faith. Look in verse verse four with me. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the surprising context of their flourishing faith. It's persecution. they're not living in spiritual peace time. These are spiritually and physically embattled people. Uh, they say that it was both persecuted and afflicted. Now, why does he say both? It seems kind of like synonyms, right? It's almost the same thing. Well, afflictions tell us that they are having people who are persecuting them for the cause of Christ, specifically. That's, that's persecution. Afflictions are when they're experiencing a general hardship that tries their faith. So they are, they seem to be uh, getting it from every side. The whole world seems to be against this church that Paul is writing to. They're experiencing pain, and yet we see something that's amazing. They're growing. They're thriving. They're steadfast. Their belief is unshakable. This is what the unshakable nature of genuine belief looks like, played out, lived out. So how many of us this morning would say, you know what, this is the kind of faith I want. How many of you want unshakable faith like these? this church here is demonstrating? I think most of us would say, you know what, this is what I want my life to look like. And yet when it comes down to it, we look at the faith of the Thessalonians, and we want what they have, spiritually speaking, but we're hesitant to experience, to, hesitant to experience what they experienced. We want what they have, we just don't want to experience what they experience. And I think this vision of Christian life has a lot to do with the phenomena that is called nostalgia. Uh, there's a lot of nostalgia for the 80s going on right now. If you see a movie, or you listen to music, or you even look for like fashion, you know what? The 80s are influencing everything right now. The 90s are running around the corner. But nostalgia is not new. It's not something that this generation just invented. It's been around for a long time. But what's it all about? When we boil nostalgia down to uh, its roots, we see essentially that nostalgia is about taking those parts of the past that you want to remember, that you want to hold on to, and you include those while jettisoning those parts of the past that were hard or that you don't want to be part of the reality, this memory that you are constructing. So you keep the good, you leave the hard, And it's really not about relishing history. Nostalgia is not about relishing history. It's about creating a fantasy. And as Christians, we have a tendency to view our Christian walk with nostalgia goggles. We want to grow in faith. We want to increase in love. But we flinch at the notion that our growth is going to involve hardship or pain. We want Christian nostalgia, where we can wear the t-shirt, we can turn up the tunes and get all the feels with none of the hardship. That's not what the Christian life looks like. It's clearly not what Paul is presenting to us in this passage today. The goodness of God in the sanctifying process of Christian growth is powerfully felt in the context of suffering and pain. To leave out the hardships here is incompatible with remembering the goodness of God. So what Paul presented is a nostalgia-proof Christianity. You can't remember how good God is, how much he is acting in their lives without remembering what God has brought us through. So God is good, and he's with us all the time. So if unshakable belief is not untested belief, and that's what we've been shown here this morning, what does it mean for us to live lives of growing faith, and of love that is increasing for one another, and for our Lord. What does that look like in the Christian life? Well, Let's look in 1 John chapter 4. First John chapter 4, and don't turn if, uh, if it will take you too much time. We might just uh, roll along here and mark it down in your notes. But 1 John chapter 4, I'm reading from verses 9 through 11, it tells us, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his Son, into the world, his only son into the world, so that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You see, the faithfulness of God precedes our faith. The love of God comes before our love. And many of us are looking for peacetime faith. We're looking for peacetime faith that grows in easy times with no adversity. And that's so often not how the Christian life works. We need to be reminded that God's faith precedes ours. When we think we don't have any to give, you know what? God has come before us. So when we lose our job and we don't know what's going on, we're so desperate in what's going on in our lives, we know that God is there and that he's faithful to us. When you feel trapped in your circumstances, maybe your life looks great on the outside, but your family or your circumstances just feel so weighty and you wonder how you're going to endure, well, know that God is there and that he is faithful even so. When you are told by the doctor that your spouse has cancer and you ask, how can I have love? How can I have faith? When I'm so desperate and I feel so alone, it'd be a lie to tell you that it would be easy. But let me let you know that God is there. His love has come before your love, His faith has come before your faith, and He's right there loving you through the fire. If you are in Christ, God is with you, God is there. And we're to cling to these promises. It's not like God doesn't care for our hardships. He's there with us. He's supplying the faith that we need. You see, unshakable belief in Jesus Christ will lead to a faith that grows and a love that increases because he has gone before us. You know, before I had even the faintest idea of loving my brothers and sisters in Christ, before I had the faintest idea of loving God, he loved me. Before I had the the shadow of a thought of living a life of growing faith in God. He was faithful to, send his pr- for, to his promise to send a redeemer who would shed his blood so that I might be made clean if I will but trust and follow him. See, our God cares for us. His strength is our strength. He, has, he strengthens our faith even to the extent that he can make it unshakable something that in and of ourselves will be unimaginable. Because if you've been through any hardship, you know you're not tough enough to make it through. And this is because this unshakable faith is rooted in something, someone who is unshakable, and that's Jesus Christ. You know, a great preacher once said, the chief occasion for grief and distress is this. The chief occasion for grief and distress is this. That we think that God is but lightly affected with our calamities. We think that God is but lightly affected with our calamities. Christian, your life can be marked by the experience of unshakable nature, the unshakable nature of genuine belief. So as we continue to look at the passage, we see that he's also telling us, Paul is also telling us not only about the unshakable nature of genuine belief, but also about the unavoidable consequences of unbelief. Paul. Paul spends a great deal of this chapter talking about how God is going to judge those who reject Christ and his church. Now, if you're following me here, this uh, this chapter is a, written as an encouragement to people, right? It kind of strikes us as odd that Paul's going to spend so much time talking about the judgment of God. It seems like kind of a somber thing, maybe a little bit of a downer. It's not like you'd receive a Hallmark card with the, uh, sorry you're feeling so bad, God will judge evil, love, pastor. It's not... It's not really what you would expect, right? But the answer is that he's not primarily writing here to condemn others. But we're so not used to hearing about God's judgment in the context of encouragement, it strikes us as weird. But let's, let's read in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to those who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's important to see that what Paul is not telling us here is he's not giving us permission to somehow rejoice at the uh, vengeance of God in a vindictive way. This is not getting back uh, in our hearts. This is not to be about getting back at people who have wronged us. That's not what he's describing here. What these verses are describing is that the righteousness of God is seen in his justice. The righteousness and the faithfulness of God. Remember, God is not nameless. He is not aimless. His purpose is being seen here. And this righteousness of God being expressed through him upholding his children and as a result destroying their enemies is something that gives us hope if we are in Christ. And this is, I want to focus this morning on the inevitability of God's judgment here because he he really emphasizes it. Uh, The way that Paul writes makes it extremely clear that God is not aimless. Uh, He says, when the the Lord Jesus is revealed, he says, they will suffer the punishment. When he comes on that day to be glorified, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. So there's an undeniable certainty to the future judgment of those who have not been reconciled to Christ. Um, During the the Cold War, uh, both sides, both the USSR and the United States were very caught up with the, uh, they were obsessed with the scenario of nuclear war. You know that if you've lived through it, you know that that was the truth. Uh, And there was particular focus on uh, a scenario that if there was ever an attack, we wanted to be able to respond, right? You wanted to have an idea of mutually assured destruction. So in the mid-80s, The Russians developed this plan. They would have a few people down in a deep, deep bunker in the earth. And these people had the ability to launch special rockets that would go across the nation. And they would launch all the nuclear missiles, okay? And if these rockets were ever launched, there was absolutely no way that you could stop a nuclear holocaust. It was a literal doomsday machine. Destruction would be inevitable if the signal was given. And what we find in God's word this morning is that God has given his signal. God has told us what will happen, and there's no stopping his judgment. There's no escape for those who have not been reconciled to him through Christ. God's word, the Bible, contains the signal that anticipates what is to come, and this is what we see in 2 Thessalonians, in our passage for today. Verse 9 tells us they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so there are two questions that we ask today. What does this mean for the believer? It's important because we know that Paul primarily wrote this to the believer. And what does this mean to the person who does not know Christ? This person who is estranged from God. Well, since... Paul wrote this letter primarily to the Christian. Uh, let's, let's look at the focus on how uh, what this means for the believer. First, we see that the return, uh, a return to this very important idea that God knows and cares about our trials and suffering. The idea here is that uh, we're to resist this temptation when we're facing hardship, and it seems to come so easily to us. Our faith is so um, fragile sometimes. That when we experience hardship, we are left wondering whether God is really in control. And Paul here is reminding these Christians, even as you experience hardship and pain, it doesn't mean that none of that is real. It doesn't mean that there's not grief and sorrow in our life. But it does mean that God's word tells us that he does not abandon his children. And that he is there with us. He is not only in control of your circumstances. He is able to uphold your faith so that you may be a living testimony of of his glory and his grace by his victorious return so uh, we also see that this passage shows us that we are not to believe the lie as Christians that somehow that the, the evil will get away with it this idea that somehow those who do bad things will get away with their sin because when you ser- when we serve an eternal God there's no statute of limitations and there's no place that you can go God will exact his punishment, his justice. And for those who do not know Christ, this, this, this passage here hits you square in the face. It, uh, it tells you that the rockets, so to speak, have been fired. God's judgment is inevitable. And what it, whatever comes next, we're told here what come ne- comes next, what comes next cannot be avoided in and of yourself. It can't be avoided by the power of your wit or your will? Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, these are the words of Christ, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. So to the same extent that this passage is written to dispel the fear of those who are in Christ, it ought to genuinely inspire fear of those who are not in christ those who are enemies of god you may say spencer am i truly an enemy of god this morning i don't i don't think i hate god friend you might be the nicest person that i'll ever meet but if you approach god in your sinful brokenness you're rushing headlong into the judgment that god describes in his word you must be reconciled to Christ. And for the believer, God's victory is actually an encouragement for us. It's that God is not going to lose, that God has not forgotten us no matter how difficult our circumstances are. God is the one who has created time and he is going to reign for eternity. So we know how the story ends and that's profoundly encouraging for us. So We've seen the unshakable nature of genuine belief. We've seen it contrasted against this unavoidable consequence of unbelief. And this leads us to finally be able to see the unmatched purpose of Christian calling. It's our third idea for the day. Unmatched purpose of Christian calling. We find this in verse 11. To this end we always pray for you. That our God may make you worthy of his calling. And may fulfill every resolve for good every work of faith by his power so that the name of our lord jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our god and the lord jesus christ now as a, as a side i just want to stop for a second and talk about how paul really here uh, emphasizes the importance of persistent prayer paul talk, does not talk about mindful exercise mindfulness exercises Talk about meditation. He talks about persistent prayer. Praying for the church all the time. And when I ask us, as a body of believers here this morning, is this what characterizes our prayer life? Do we pray? Do you pray for your church? I didn't ask if you could quote the Bible backwards to me or if you're here every time the church doors open, but do we pray for our church? Paul thought it was really important. He tells us that he does it all the time. So I think it should be important to us. It ought to be a passion of our hearts, something that grips us, something that we desire and long to do, to pray that God would work in his church. So Paul's desire for his church is that their lives would be in alignment with the gospel that their lives will be in alignment with the gospel truth and the redemptive purpose that God has given us. The ultimate call that Paul gives us here is the, is the call to do what we were created to do, to glorify our God. It only makes sense, right? As a created being, we're all created beings, created by a sovereign God. Our purpose must be to glorify the one who created us. You know, if you were uh, raised in a Christian home, you might have uh, been asked questions about the Bible. They're called catechism. It just simply means questions. They're questions that help us learn about the Bible. One of the most famous questions that children are taught about the Bible is, what is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of man? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And some of you may know that our purpose is to glorify God. You may be able to, I could wake you up in the middle of the night and you you can give me that answer. But that's not how you live your life. You know, they say familiarity breeds contempt. They say it also breeds complacency. And so often we know, oh yeah, I'm supposed to glorify God. But does this characterize your life? Is this the passion of your desires to glorify the one who has created you? This is what our desires ought to be. We are, only have value insofar as we were created. We do what we were created to do. You ever, I assume most of us have watched the Olympics at some time or another. And these Olympics get crazier and crazier, right? They spend more and more money. They build more and more buildings. And it's all about showing off how, uh, how much a nation can build, right? It's a, kind of an ego game at the end of the day. But they build these million-dollar facilities. And I don't know if you know it or not, but sometimes those million-dollar facilities are only there for one activity. They may only be used once, And not talking about for multiple events at the same Olympics, I'm talking about for one event at the Olympics. And after that, they're either left empty or they're torn down. It's amazing. But these buildings only have value insofar as they do what they were meant to do. And after they serve their purpose, they have no more value. You see, if we are in Christ, we are to see ourselves this way. That we have value insofar as we do what we were meant to do. We were created in God's image. We're designed to glorify the one who created us. And I asked this this morning, are we bold enough to say to God, you know what, God, if I'm not living in light of the gospel, tear me down. My value is found... In glorifying the one who created me. So, dear God, minister to my heart that I might delight in you, that I might live in light of the gospel, and for your glory, oh God. Are we, are we bold enough to pray that prayer today? I ask God that you would allow us to rise to the unmatched purpose of Christian calling. You know, as we've looked at how God is at work the unshakable nature of genuine belief, the unescapable consequences of unbelief, and the unmatched purpose of Christian calling. I hope that you've seen there's a, uh, the text paints a picture of us, of God as the master of past, present, and future. See, the Lord has obtained salvation for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He As the Spirit is with us now, he is ministering to us as we live lives that are transformed by faith. And Christ is coming one day to gather his children, to show his justice and his love to the world. So past, present, and future, God has them all in his hands. He is not nameless. We know who he is. He is not aimless. We know what he has told us, what he has done, and what he will do, and what he is doing in our lives right now. And this ought to radically shape how we live our lives. Our belief is vindicated by God's steadfast love and perfect justice. So as you live your life in light of the gospel, my prayer is that you would go now and that you would find your purpose and in, in your peace in his glorification. That you would do what you were made to do, because you were made for his glory. Pray for me. Pray with me now. As we ask God to minister to us. We're going to have a time, if you would bow your head, we're going to have a time in just a moment for response.